Let's open up our Bibles to John, the book of John. John 7, 53 is where we're going to be starting this morning. And we've been in this series in the Gospel of John. And I have to actually say that we're taking a break from the Gospel of John this morning. You're like, what are you talking about, Pastor Craig? Okay, now this passage that we're going to be looking at here that Jim read, what a great read too from Jim. But um, if you notice in your Bible, and this is where we go a little bit geek mode, so I'm going to shift gears into geek mode. And we just need to pay attention a little bit, because sometimes when we're reading our Bibles and there's some some footnotes or there's some side notes or some brackets, sometimes we're like, what's going on here? So one of the things about this passage, in your Bible, in any modern translation, there's a really good chance that, your, that this passage is either in brackets or double brackets and has some footnotes with it. Now, I'm going to read what my Bible says, what my modern translation says about this passage, and I, I just want, and I want to say a couple things about it before we start walking through it. So um, we are taking, so all, all this to say, in my Bible at the very top, and, and in a second I'll have you raise your hand, it says, um, it's at the very top of this passage, it says the earliest manuscripts do not include John 7.53 to 8.11. Does somebody have a note like that in their Bible? Okay, good. Okay, hands are up. That's good. And then at the very bottom there's a footnote. Footnote reads, some manuscripts do not include 7.53 to 8.11. And then it goes on to say, others add the passage here in John, or after 7.36 in John, or after 21.25 in John, and still others include this passage after Luke 21.38. Does anybody have a, a footnote that says something like that? Okay, good, 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 okay. All right, so what we have here, okay, before we get started in this, what we have here is we have what we call a textual variant. Now, before you're like, look, I'm going to, Pastor Craig's going to talk about textual criticism for the next 25 minutes. No, I'm not. I am, however, going to record an In the Weeds podcast this week to explain about this passage. I know all of you listen to the In the Weeds podcast. God bless you. Okay, Um, but basically, here's the deal with this passage. This passage was likely, we have manuscripts that are old, that are like from the second and third century, early, that do not include this passage in it. What probably happens is that this is a piece of Jesus tradition, that when the oral traditions about Jesus, before the Gospels were ever written down, you probably had people just talking about their encounters with Jesus, the eyewitnesses of Jesus, talk about their encounters with Jesus, the stories about Jesus. Maybe somebody, maybe people took notes, right? If you watch the, um, if you watch the chosen, like Matthew, Levi, the, the tax collector, he's the guy taking notes on everything. Maybe there were people who took notes, but probably these start to get written down about midway through the first century, but before that, it's oral tradition. The thing about this story is that by the time Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are written, this story is very likely not included in any of the Gospels. But the story, I mean, the story has legs, does it not? Like the story keeps going. The story is, I think in a lot of ways, the story captures the heart of Jesus, that this is authentic Jesus tradition. But for some reason or another, 
the gospel writers do not include it in all the stories. And even John will say there's lots of things that Jesus said and did that are not written in this book. And so we would imagine that there's a lot of things that are out there, but probably at a later time, at a later time, a well-meaning scribe puts it in with a little asterisk. And every time we see a pa- this passage in an early manuscript, we do see a little asterisk next to it. That this, it, this becomes, and essentially what happens is some people put it in in the Gospel of John, some people put it in the Gospel of Luke, but the traditional spot where it probably ends up is here in the Gospel of John. And so what I'm going, my basic, if you don't want to listen to the podcast, and I understand if you don't, um, is this. I think that this is authentic Jesus tradition. In other words, that this story actually happened, but I don't believe that the story is originally in the Gospel of John. How are we doing so far? Nobody's gotten up and left. So that's good. So like, I'm not trying to take this out of your Bible. And I, on the podcast, I'll explain the history of manuscripts and traditions and translations and how we come to where we are. But I do want to take some time to talk about this story as we are working through the Gospel of John because I do think this is a story about Jesus that did happen. And I do believe it captures something about the heart of Jesus and the skill of Jesus as he encounters people who are trying to entrap him. Are you guys with me? I mean, if you're like, look, we shouldn't be reading this story. It's not originally with John. You're like, I'm out of here. But you're not. You're still here. And I do want to talk about it and and get, get a little bit of a sense about what we're talking about. So anyway, longer explanation coming. Those of you who have ears to hear, you can listen to the podcast. Um, Or you can just go along your merry way. But let me just say a few words about this particular story. Let's look at 753. It says, They each went to their own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Now, that scene, that, that explanation is actually reminiscent of really where we are in the Gospel of John. We talked about this idea that we're in kind of this last six-month stretch from the Feast of Tabernacles to Passover, in which Jesus is in the last six months of his ministry. And as we look in other Gospels, and we look in the Gospel of of Luke 20, in, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 21, it paints the same picture of what Jesus is doing in these last days, these last months, as he's teaching. It says in Luke, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it. Luke 21, 37, uh, it says, Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And so those of us who went to Israel, you you might have a picture in your mind. You got the Temple Mount, and if you want to leave the Temple Mount, you go down on the eastern slope, you go down through the Kidron Valley, and then you start walking up through the Garden of Gethsemane, and eventually up the slope of the Mount of Olives. And if you go far enough over the crest of the Mount of Olives, you come to the town of Bethany. And the Gospel of Mark says that Jesus, at the end of these days, he would teach in the temple, he would leave the temple, then he would go to Bethany in the evenings. And Bethany was where Um, Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. So the scene that we have here isn't, it seems like this is right in line with the authenticity of what we see in the synoptics as uh, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as well as in John. So it's reminiscent of the earlier teaching of of chapter 7, and that's where we are in, in this passage. 
And so we see that this is the last six months of Jesus' ministry. And in the other Gospels, the other thing we see about the last six months of Jesus' teaching is that he would go into the temple courtyards and there would be these kind of roofed and, and covered areas where you could gather and teach. Although if he's doing it early in the morning, he probably goes, and like, like I do in the morning, um, it, try to stay in the sun, right? Because it's cold. So you teach in the sun, people gather around, and then there would be, in these last few months, as Jesus' popularity rises, but also the controversy level rises around Jesus, that gathered around him are not only people who are interested in his teaching, but also challengers, People who would come and challenge their teaching, like in Mark 12, where the lawyer comes and he says, hey, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment out of them all? Like, that's a challenge. And we see other examples where Jesus is challenged about certain things. And so this would be an example of one of those times in the last six months, Jesus teaching in the temple courts, that people are coming not only to hear, but also they're coming to challenge the controversial rabbi. And this is an example of a challenge story here we have. So let's look at 8.3. What is, so let's, let's ask the question, what is the challenge? What is the legal background? What is the trap that is being set? Or in this case, we should ask, what are the traps that are being set? You guys with me? All right, seven, or 8.3. It says that the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman like this. So what do you say? And again, it said they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Okay, let's just talk about this for a second. Okay. So the scribes, the scribes were the ones who, uh, you didn't have printing presses in the ancient world, and you had to have people who would keep the scrolls. And so what the scribes would do is they were the ones who kept the scrolls, and they would copy the scrolls down to make sure that they were accurate. And the scribes were the ones, if you were a Pharisee, Pharisees were the ones who were like, hey, we got to keep Torah, and we're gonna, what we're going to do, Pharisees, Pharisees were really strict in the sense that Whatever the, whatever the requirements for priests were, the Pharisees said, we're going to take those requirements onto ourselves. So we live everyday life, but we're going to up the ante for the everyday life and take on the, the purity requirements of the priests onto ourselves. Those are is through the scribes. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they're kind of a team in this sense. And one of the questions they, they're going to bring is this question about what do we do with the woman I mean, if you just want to take it academically, what do we do with a woman who's caught in adultery? But what they want to do is they want to press the issue. And so what they do, the way this is worded, is they're making a legal claim. These men are making a legal claim according to Torah. And here are some things that you would hear that the first hearers of this, if you were Jewish, what would you hear in hearing this story? And the first thing is this. These men have come and they're making a formal legal claim that this woman before him is guilty. All the requirements of guilt have been established. Okay, so they're making a legal claim. The law required, and here in the law, the law required the testimony of two witnesses, two witnesses, two witnesses who saw the couple in the sexual context they were in. 
Today we call that peeping toms, okay? But in that day, they were witnesses of this. Whether they stumbled onto this or whether, and we're going to see that it's very unlikely that they would have stumbled onto this, but the two witnesses had to see the same things at the same time and place so the testimonies would match up exactly. That's what Torah required. Two witnesses who had the exact same testimony and were the eyewitnesses. Now, in order for this to happen, and I think if you were originally hearing this, and maybe even today you're hearing this as well, is that this was most likely a setup. It's very unlikely that two people would just happen onto a very intimate setting in which a man and a woman were having sex. That this would not have been something that was public. This was probably a setup. This was probably a trap. Also, the law expected that if a person witnessed another about to commit a sin, it was the obligation of those who saw that they were about to commit a sin to stop it from happening. That was the obligation. Now, it's one thing if you just walk across and you see something happening, but if you, if you see it about to take place, the law, the Torah says that it's your obligation to stop it from happening. These witnesses, whoever they were, would have had to stand silently by, seeing but neglecting their moral command, their moral obligation to stop the man and the woman. So we'll get to whether, so this is probably a setup. This is probably an entrapment. One legal question that comes up here is whether the woman was married or whether she was betrothed. And the reason why is in Deuteronomy 22, if, she is be, if she's married, she is to be killed, and it doesn't say how, but if she is betrothed, it says that she's supposed to be stoned. But in both cases, in both of those cases in Deuteronomy 22, it's not just the woman who's killed, but in both cases, it's the man who's with her who's also supposed to be put to death. And one question, if you were hearing this in the first century, you'd be like, where's the guy? Where, where's the guy? Like you found the woman, but you let the guy go. And if you were reading this in the first century and you were Jewish, you'd be like, something smells fishy about this. And we're not even near the Sea of Galilee. Sorry about that joke. That's okay. Okay. But the whole thing smells like a trap. Now, here's the thing. It's a trap that is set up to ensnare Jesus in the middle of this controversy. But in order to ensnare Jesus, you had to entrap the woman. The man has either fled or has been allowed to get away. The witnesses stand silently by. And the woman now is being publicly shamed and facing a gruesome and public fate. She's left holding the bag Because they could have taken Jesus aside privately and been like, hey, Jesus, we have a question about the law. What if a woman is caught in adultery? What should we do? They could have done it silently, privately, on the side. That happened all the time in the ancient world. Like, we don't want, like, we don't want to act rashly, but this was meant to be a public, put it in front of Jesus, make him make a decision. 
Now, the other thing about this, if you were hearing this in the first century, the trap is multi-layered, and here's why. Here's why, okay? First of all, there is a huge debate among rabbis in the first century about capital punishment. Whether or not it should be done was actually a debate among the rabbis. And so in some way, they're asking Jesus to weigh in on this kind of controversial issue. There's another issue. Some, some rabbis felt like stoning, for some reason or another, I don't exactly know why, they felt like the, the capital punishment by stoning violated the, the resurrection clauses. I don't know why, okay? But, so it was like, so in the Mishnah, it actually says strangulation is the way to go. I don't even know, like, this isn't what they teach you in seminary. Should you throw rocks at somebody, or should you strangle them to death? Like, that's not, the, that's not like seminary material. But this was the debate that was going on in the ancient world among rabbis. So this, the, even the question about capital punishment is a means of entrapping Jesus. Like, how's he going to come down on this? He's, is he going to show where he lands on kind of the political scale? The other thing that happens with this is that because of the Romans, the Romans had made it clear by that time that we have the power over life and death. No one gets put to death unless we do it. And the Romans are happy to put people to death. But the Romans make it clear like nobody dies on our watch if it's not by our hand. This is why, again, this is why Jesus is not killed by stoning Jesus is killed by crucifixion. It's the Romans who do it at the instigation of the religious leaders. So for Jesus to say, yeah, she should be stoned, and they actually carry out the act, it would raise the ire of the Romans, and they would likely get Jesus for being a seditionist. So that's another layer to this whole thing. And then there's, and then just, and we haven't even talked about the woman, like just take the woman for example. What is Jesus to do with the woman if he excuses her behavior? Then he's morally lax and suspect of not keeping Torah. And if he, if he says, yeah, she should be stoned, he's cold-blooded. Like there's three layers of, of Jesus. Like this is, this is a complex trap that has been set and now has been sprung on Jesus. And however he answers, in three different ways, he is going to ruin his reputation. So what does Jesus do? Same thing anybody does. Let's buy some time. It says that he writes on the ground, right? It says in the passage that what he does is he, uh, if we look at the passage here, it says he bent down. They said this to test him, verse 8 that they might have some charge to bring against him, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. So what is he writing on the ground? I mean, you can see the scene. There's a woman standing in front of him, pulled out act of sexual intercourse and drug into the temple courts, surrounded by a group of angry men, and here's Jesus. Now, what he writes, there's been a lot of speculation about what he writes. And it doesn't say, does it? Is anybody wondering what he's writing? 
I hope you are, because <laughs> there is a sense in which you're like, what the heck did, is he writing? Now, okay, so there's a number of ideas, and I'm going to get to where I, what I think is going on, but here are, here are a few ideas in the history of interpretation. The first is simply what I said first. He bends down to write on the ground in order to simply buy time. Like, this is a tough question, and I need a little time to collect my thoughts, okay? That's a possibility. I don't think that's, I think that's, I think that's very much possible, okay? If there's a traditional answer to this, if there's a traditional answer, many people believe that he writes Jeremiah 17, 13, which says this, those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. And you could see, you could see how that would play in, like they, and this implication of um, writing their names shall be written in the earth. And maybe he was writing names in the earth. Maybe he's writing names down, and they're thinking about Jeremiah seventeen thirteen. There's a few commentators who think that because Jesus has smelled out the trap, and he knows that these witnesses have entrapped this woman, that he he writes in the sand or in the ground Exodus twenty three one which says, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. That's a long sentence. All of those things are long sentences. It's like, Jesus, like, he's like, hold on, guys. I got to put some punctuation in here. Like, okay, so all this to say, what, whatever, so here's the thing. Whatever he writes, whatever he writes, and right now I'm saying I don't know what he writes, Okay. Um, I've got an idea, and I'll give you my, my idea here, but he's going to do it again, and so I want to talk about it when he does it again. Whatever he writes, it causes the men to lose their patience and to press him for an answer. And whatever he writes then, coupled with his response, causes them to peel off and realize that they've lost the debate. Okay, so what, what does he write? Well, let's keep going. Let's keep going and see what, what he does. So eventually, they lose their patience. So look at 8-7. So he's writing in the ground. He's writing in the ground, and then 8-7, as they continue to ask him, and the implication is that they're, they're pressing him. The, 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 um, the, the uh, aspect of the verb is that they're, they're ongoing. This is ongoing. They're asking, they're asking, they're asking. What about it, Jesus? What about it, Jesus? Stop writing in the ground. Tell us what you think. As they continue to ask him, he stands up and he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. And then he goes back down and he starts writing again. Okay. Now, what Jesus says let him who is without sin, let him throw the first stone. Even this, what, what, what exactly does this mean? Well, probably, again, we're going we're gonna to talk through what these could mean. But the, the range here, the most general thing, the most plain reading is that, hey, if you have sin, if you're a sinner, anyone who's not a sinner, generally speaking, you can throw the first stone. Now, Okay, that, that probably is not necessarily what he's saying, that only the sinless are able to cast judgment. Because there's plenty of times that groups of people who have gone, you know, that are, that are right before God, although they're human and they're sinners, 
that, that make discerning judgments about things and people. And so it, might, it may or may not be either way, okay? Probably what he's saying here is in Deuteronomy 13.9, you guys are like, this is a real trip into the Old Testament. Hang with me, everybody. In Deuteronomy 13.9, it says that those who bring the accusation, in other words, those who are the witnesses of the crime, they are supposed to be the first ones to throw the stones. So in the Old Testament, in the Torah, if you are convicted of a capital offense, it is the witnesses who are the first ones to throw the first stones. And stoning's not a happy thing. You throw stones at someone, and you know, you, from all sides, you surround them, you drive them out of the city, you surround them, and as they're, you know, they can't protect themselves, and so they get hit until they're unconscious, and then you take a big stone and you finish the job. That's the way stoning works. Sorry for that on a Sunday morning, but that's the way stoning works. It's gruesome, okay? In the book of Acts, it says that the apostle Paul was, was stoned, on a missionary journey, um, and then he gets up after they, they think he's dead because that sounds like you could kill somebody pretty well, right? But he gets up and he goes back into the city that he's miraculously resuscitated after that. But it's gruesome. It's gruesome, okay? So here's the deal. So the witnesses, so the witnesses to the woman's adultery, what he's saying probably is, okay, who are the two witnesses? Step forward. And you two who are without sin in this matter, you start. Who here is without sin in this matter? You start. You throw the first stone. Witnesses, step forward. You start us out. Now that's a, that's a pretty, like, that's calling it out. Because it's not just going to be mob riot. This is going to be, no, who is making the accusation? Let's get to the bottom of this. Who's doing this? If you're go and, and maybe on the most basic level, if you're going to take these measures and put this woman to death, it calls for a little self-reflection, everybody. Like, you might think the letter of the law, but if we're going to do this, there's a, some self-reflection that needs to take place. And whoever here is without sin in this matter, because this smells like a trap. And whoever is here that is, not, that is without sin in this matter, that is a witness of this, you go first. And then he goes back down to start writing. Which brings us back to what did Jesus write on the ground? All right, so here, here's my thoughts. And again, this, this is just, this might be as, as, as good as any other explanation out there. And if you read four Gospels of John commentaries, you're going to hear four different answers on this. Okay, Here, here's the idea. So my thoughts are first this. It must have been short. I don't think Jesus is writing out full, complete sentences. Okay, just my thoughts, just my thoughts. Okay. I think the mention of Jesus writing with his finger is important. Now, if you're here and you've read the Old Testament and you've read the Old Testament, where else does the finger of God write stuff down? When Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai and he has the stone tablets, 
it says that the finger of God writes the commandments on the tablets. If you notice here, earlier on, when they come to Jesus, they say, Moses commanded us in the law. And when Jesus stoops down, he's like, Moses. The finger of God is writing. And I think that actually, he writes either the entire Ten Commandments or a portion of the Ten Commandments. And here's why. Now, here's the deal. The first five commandments, the first five commandments are long. If you read the Ten Commandments, the first five are long. They're like a bunch of sentences long. But once you get to six through ten, they're remarkably short. So like no other gods, no graven images, don't take the Lord's name in vain, keep the Sabbath, honor your father and mother, long. But once you get to six, lo tirzah, do not murder. Lo tinoth, do not be an adulterer. Lo tignav, do not steal. Lo eshua, do not bear false witness. And lo takmad, do not covet. Two or three words at a time. Now if he starts, if he, if he just does those six, and that's all you have to do. You, down here, it's just lo tanath. Very short, very short. And if he just starts writing those things, maybe, maybe he does it in this order. Maybe he does it in this order. Maybe he starts with, he writes in the sand, they're like, hey, this woman was caught in adultery, and so he bends down and he writes in the sand, do not commit adultery. And everybody's like, yeah. Jesus, he keeps Torah. And then, and, and, and then he's, as he's there, and they're like, we want to know what you think, though. Jesus, we want to know what you think. What should we do with them? Maybe he goes, maybe he then goes to, do not covet your neighbor's wife. Because look, these guys basically just witnessed and let happen in front of them a sexual act. Now, look, I don't know, like, if you're a man in here, there's a very good chance that there are mixed motives in that action. Okay? So maybe he goes to do not covet your neighbor's wife. And then maybe, then maybe, as he calls out the two witnesses, maybe when he goes back down, he says, he writes, do not bear false witness. And then maybe the last thing he writes is, do not murder. Now, I, coupled with those, those, if you put all that together, in that order, I think it's interesting because it says, when they heard it, when he says what he says, and after he writes in the ground, they went away one by one. The language is that they kind of peel off a little bit at a time. The crowd just starts diminishing little by little. But it says this, that it begins with, beginning with older ones. Now, I don't know, maybe it's that the older ones are more aware of their sinfulness I think probably in this case, it might have been the older Pharisees and scribes who set up the trap. And so as Jesus calls them out, that the ones who feel the most guilty about this are the first ones to peel off. Because the shame is now going, the shame that is clearly focused on the woman, 
the shame has now been refocused out into the crowd. Who are the two witnesses? Call them forward. Let them begin the process. Ask them if they're without sin. And they're nowhere to be found. Maybe they peel off. They're like, look, this is going bad. This is not going right. And then those who might have set it up a little bit more, they're like, no, we can't do it. And then those who realize, who have kind of the savvy, the political and the, 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 the religious savvy or legal savvy to know this is not going to happen, maybe they peel off. And those are the older ones. The younger ones, the zealots, who've got the rocks in the hands, they start looking around, they're like, oh, the, the guys who got us into this, they're not here. And if we do this, we're going to get in some big trouble. And so they start to peel off, starting with the older to the younger. That, again, it doesn't say anything in here. I'm just putting some things together. There could be other explanations for this, but I think this makes sense in light of what's going on. I think when I get to heaven, I'll ask the lady. Beginning with the older. And then the woman was left behind. And in 8.10, Jesus stands up and he says, respectfully, the, the, the address woman is a respectful address. He addresses his mother that way other women that way. He says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? He just asks, where, where'd they go? Is anyone, in, and the verb is, um, the verb is a katakrino. It's, are they judging against you? Is there anybody here who's judging against you? Is anyone casting a verdict on you? Now, here's the deal. It's probably important to note that the woman was not innocent of this charge. The woman was not innocent in this charge. She was caught. Now, we don't know the circumstances of her life, and I want to be clear about this. Most women would probably not, in those days or today, choose to be an adulterer or to break an engagement of some kind. But to say this, in the first century, in the ancient world, and even today, Many women have very few choices and often found themselves at a disadvantage at the hands of powerful men who could either leverage their power over them or her economic situation against her. If this was a trap, then she was either manipulated or used in the scheme. It's clear she's not innocent, but she is caught in a scheme. And I want to make this clear. It's not that Jesus is saying, you're innocent, this is a false charge. He's simply asking, where are your accusers now? Is anybody bringing a charge against you? And she says in 8.11, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. He says, I'm not casting a verdict against you either. Now here's the thing. 
if there is anyone in the crowd that is without sin, it's Jesus. The one who is qualified in the matter and according to Torah to pick up a rock and to kill this woman by stoning or whatever means. Jesus had the legal right to, pre- to begin the proceedings. But Jesus chooses to refrain. All right. Now, we know that one day Jesus will come. He will return. And it won't be like his first coming, which is more of a suffering servant. When he returns again, it will be as a conquering king. He will be riding a white horse. He will be coming, conquering, and to conquer. He will have a sword in his hand, and he will have tattooed on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will make all things right. But until that day, Jesus chooses to take a different posture. And that posture is one of patience, discernment, and compassion. Patience, discernment, and I'll go so far to say kindness. I think sometimes we we want Jesus to show up to our enemies and our rivals, sword drawn and ready to do justice. Has anybody ever felt that way? You watch the news or whatever you're watching, and you're like, I want Jesus to show up, and I want Jesus to put things right. And maybe that's the way these folks felt. They felt like God needed, God needs to pour out his wrath and pour out his judgment. And God, there will be a day where Jesus will make all things right. And make no mistake, he will come. But like 2 Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient, not toward your enemies, but he's patient toward you. He's patient with you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to a place of repentance. Patience. I think one of the things that Jesus, I mean, look, I, in a story like this, I, this is when you're like, Jesus, we could just do this quick, like, call down fire, you know, take care of these, these losers, right, these, these, these pretenders, and like, do it, like, get it done. And sometimes we wish we saw, even John and James, his followers, do you remember this, where there's people who don't listen to Jesus, and they're like, hey, Jesus, do you want us to call down lightning on these people? Like, as we just went out, and we just, like, did all these miraculous things, like, do you want us to, like, bring down the heat on these people. And Jesus is like, take it easy, guys. Back down. Easy, big guy. Like, like Jesus is like, no, no, no. Patience. God is in a posture of patience. I think the very, at the very end of this, the fact that Jesus says to her, I'm not condemning you. Go and sin no more. She's not innocent. Whatever it is, though she's caught, 
She's not innocent. She was, a, she was a target, a mark, and maybe she was an easy mark, maybe for a lot of whatever reasons it might have been. But he basically says, go and sin no more. That there's still, even though Jesus is going to be patient and he's going to be kind, he's still going to be discerning that we as followers of Jesus might be called to patience and to kindness, but we're still called to discernment. We can still say, sin is sin. Go and sin no more. Jesus would be clear to say, there is a, he would land right squarely in the Jewish tradition. There is a path that leads to life, and there is a path that leads to death. Get on the path that leads to life. You're on the wrong path. Get on the path that leads to life. That's discernment. That when we, when we encourage someone, get on the path that leads to life. That's not being impatient by saying there is a path that leads to life and there's a path that leads to death. That's not being unkind. In our family, we've just been this this phrase, uh, clear is kind. Being clear about something is also a way to be kind. And he's saying there's a path that leads to death and a path that leads to life. Get on the path that leads to life. Discern. There's a way to life and contentment and health and thriving. And it's not always the way that feels good. The way that feels good, the pathway to happiness is not necessarily the path of pleasure. Don't confuse pleasure and happiness. Brain scientists know those are different chemicals. Pleasure is dopamine. Contentment is serotonin. Don't confuse those two things. I know that's a little bit extra to say on this, but the idea is that those two things, the pursuit of happiness is not the pursuit of pleasure. And understanding that we can be tricked into the idea that we think that the way to happiness is just fulfilling every pleasure I have. That's not the way to contentment. That's not the way to celebrate 50 years of marriage. You don't get on a pathway of having a happy marriage over 50 years by simply saying, I'm just going to meet every physical pleasure that I want. People who weigh 500 pounds and have cheated on their wife 100 times, that's what they say. I mean, I guess those two things do that after work. Anyway, but you get the idea. The pathway to contentment and human thriving is not simply a pathway to following what makes you feel good. There is a way of that leads to life and a way that leads to death. And if you want to chase dopamine your whole life, it will lead you to death. But if you want to have a meaningful lunch with a longtime friend, if you want to end a day after solid work and sit down with a sense of satisfaction and contentment, then there takes some discipline in that, some discernment. Jesus takes a posture of patience, of discernment. Go and sin no more. And ultimately, I think the thing, the thing about this story, as I, as I was studying it this week, and even as we were in here this morning, I'm just so struck with the power of kindness. It is the most powerful tool we as believers have. You can force someone to do something, but if you give them kindness, 
you might just find that they've been transformed. I think it's so interesting. In Romans 2, 4, Paul writes, he talks about presuming on the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience of God. And then he says, don't do that because don't you know that God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance? I mean, you think about that statement, God's kindness leads us to repentance. You could say, God's, the fear of God leads us to repentance, okay? Guilting someone leads them to repentance. Shaming someone leads them to, no, 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 no. That's not what it says. God's kindness leads us to repentance. It's his kindness that is his most powerful tool to lead us into transformation. And you think about this woman as Jesus is riding on the ground and all these people have peeled off and he looks up at her and he says, where'd they go? Is anybody condemning you? And she says, there's no one. He says, I don't, I'm not condemning you either. Go and sin no more. Do you think she went right back out into her former lifestyle, whatever it might have been? No way. That is a transformative moment. And it is God's kindness that begins that transformation. We don't hear anything else about her, but one cool thing about her is that one of the things I know in the Gospels is when you have an unnamed woman in the Gospel, you know that unnamed woman is going to go on and do some awesome stuff. There's a lot of times you get unnamed women in the Gospels, and they go on, and they are doing things. They are people of faith. The woman who touches Jesus' robe, what's her name? I don't know. She's the woman with the issue of blood. She's the unnamed woman. The Syrophoenician woman who asked Jesus to heal her daughter, What's her name? I don't know, but she wins the argument with Jesus. And here's this woman. Go and sin no more. I think it's very likely that she probably was there the next day to listen to Jesus. I think it's pretty possible. We don't know. Again, we're, we're, we're thinking here. And I suppose as we kind of finish this up, you think about Jesus' posture towards this woman. Patience, discernment, Kindness. And my question to us in here, to myself as well, is there a person in your life or a type of person in your life that you need to take on the posture of patience, discernment, and kindness with? Maybe you've been trying all kinds of things. You've been trying to manipulate them. You've been trying to guilt them. You've been withholding your approval of them. I mean, we all have our strategies, right? Somebody does what you want them to do, and so you've got your strategy. I don't know what it is. I could guess what they are. You get angry at them. You give them a piece of your mind, whatever it is. What if you took Jesus' posture here? Of patience, of discernment. There's a way that leads to life. There's a way that leads to death. Would you reflect on that? And kindness. Is there a person that particularly God is calling you to take that posture towards. You know what you're doing when you take that posture towards another person? You are adopting the posture of Jesus. You're adopting, actually, the posture of God in this particular time. This is the posture that God has towards you and I and towards this world. God should just gone, but it says God so loved the world that he sent his son. Even in the sending of his son is an act of kindness, an act of discernment, an act of patience. 
And we're in a season in our world where, look, the world is, it's all going to hell in a handbasket, everybody, and it's bad. But I believe that the church at this point is called to a posture of patience, discernment, and kindness. And let's see what happens. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this story. Even if it's not original to John, I get it, Father, I get it. But we want to take it seriously. We think it, it really captures the heart of Jesus. We can imagine it happening. We might even be able to imagine ourselves in it. Maybe every time we come to prayer, there is this sense in which we show up with our own condemning voices, our own, the condemning voices of this world, and even as we spend time with Jesus, that we remember, oh, because of my faith that I am justified, I'm completely forgiven, I have the righteousness of Christ, that I've been reconciled, that I've been brought near by the blood of Jesus into a relationship with the Father, that it is no longer condemnation that I look for because I am in Christ Jesus, that I've been made brand new and complete in Jesus, and as I spend that time with him that I find myself simply saying, where have the accusers gone? That Jesus has rejoiced that I have come. Father, would you give us that sense that you have called us, that you are in this posture with us as we begin to try to put this posture at work among those that we're having a hard time with. Give us the strength and the guidance of your spirit to do this very thing. We love you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.